Hello, and welcome to the conclusion of the Rewatch Rewind, the podcast where I counted down my top 40 most frequently rewatched movies from 2003 through 2022. To those of you listening to this on the day it's coming out, happy Cary Grant's birthday! This felt like an appropriate day to release this fun bonus episode to analyze my list a bit more, get into some statistics, talk about what I've learned from this project, wrap things up, etc. If that sounds boring to you, that's totally fair, I won't hold it against you if you want to skip this. But before you turn it off, I want to mention that my brother Quinn, my guest from the Ella Enchanted episode, put together a Sounds of the Rewatch Rewind Spotify playlist featuring the songs and soundtracks from the movies I've talked about that he could find on there, which I'm going to link in the show notes, so now that you've listened to me talk about these movies, you can listen to parts of the movies themselves. Assuming the runtimes on IMDb are correct, I spent approximately 99,258 minutes watching these 40 movies from 2003 through 2022, which is 1,654 hours and 18 minutes, or 68 days, 22 hours and 18 minutes. So almost 10 weeks. Which sounds like a lot, but it was spread out over 20 years, so I don't feel like that's particularly excessive. I wouldn't have been surprised to learn I had spent more time watching these movies. And that's one of the main things I've learned from actually keeping track of the movies I watch. I'm very bad at estimating how frequently I rewatch movies. Before I started writing down what I watched, I thought there were lots of movies I regularly watched dozens of times per year, and probably several that I'd seen over a hundred times. But now I know that watching a movie five times in a year can feel like a ton, and there are relatively few that I feel like sitting through more than 20 times total, let alone a hundred. Part of that could come from maturing or from having a much wider array of movie choices at my fingertips, but a significant part of it is that it takes fewer rewatches than I think it does for a movie that I love to stick in my brain. There are plenty more films that didn't make it anywhere near my top 40 that I feel like I know backwards and forwards and inside out. So I just want to reiterate what I said in the introductory episode. I don't think these are the 40 best movies ever made, and I don't even think they're my 40 favorite movies, but I do love them all and I don't regret getting to talk about any of them. When I first started keeping track of what I watched back in 2003, I thought of myself as someone who primarily loved old movies, with a few newer movies managing to worm their way into my heart. I would have expected most of my top 40 movies to be in black and white, and almost all of them to be from before 1970. But as it turns out, 18 are fully live-action and in color, 16 are live-action and black and white, 4 are fully animated, and 2 are a mix of animation and color live-action. The breakdown of which decade these films are from tells a particularly fascinating story. Five of these movies came out in the 1930s, 9 in the 1940s, 3 in the 1950s, 3 in the 1960s, 0 in the 1970s, 4 in the 1980s, 4 in the 1990s, nine in the 2000s, and three in the 2010s. Which means that exactly half were from before the 1970s, and exactly half were from after the 1970s. Many of the views of movies from the 2000s occurred in the first few years I kept track, so clearly the pretentious I-only-love-old-movies persona I tried to cultivate as a young teen was never very accurate. Stories from a variety of eras resonate with me. But what, you may be wondering, do I have against movies from the 1970s? First of all, to be clear, there are several movies from the 1970s that I love, they just didn't happen to make it into my top 40. But the thing about the 70s is, that's when Hollywood movies became more explicitly sexy. By which I mean that after the motion picture production code was abandoned in the late 1960s, 
filmmakers started putting much more explicit sexual content into their movies because they were finally allowed to. Now, I'm not saying I'm in favor of censorship. I think people should be able to make movies about whatever they want, provided they're not actively hurting people. But a lot of 1970s movies feel particularly overwhelmingly sexual to me, like Hollywood was trying to release decades worth of previously forbidden sex scenes as quickly as possible. And I want to be clear that I don't necessarily think there's anything inherently wrong with that, although I feel like it was often executed in ways that objectified women, which I do have a problem with. But I also think a not insignificant reason I'm not as into movies from that era is related to my asexuality. I'm not judging 1970s movies for having too much sex, and obviously not every movie from that decade has explicit sexual content, but I don't think it's a coincidence that the decade after the production code went away is the one that doesn't have any representation in my top 40 most frequently rewatched movies. While movies with sexual content continue to be made long after the 1970s, it does feel a bit like once the novelty wore off, filmmakers kind of toned it down a bit, or at least incorporated it into more interesting stories. It's kind of like when a kid learns a swear word. At first, it's like a huge deal and they get in trouble for using it. And then when they get older, they're like allowed to swear and they feel so cool for a while, but then it stops feeling cool and they learn how to use it more selectively and effectively. That's how it feels like sexual content in the Hollywood film industry evolved. So as a relatively sex indifferent asexual who doesn't exactly mind sexual content but doesn't particularly like it either, it makes sense that that transition period doesn't appeal to me as much. And I do have to keep saying that I'm specifically talking about the Hollywood film industry because the vast majority of the movies I watch are from Hollywood. Really the only foreign film in my top 40 is Pride and Prejudice, and even that was co-produced by an American company. I have seen and enjoyed several films from other countries, but I could definitely watch more. There is an upsetting lack of diversity on this list. The vast majority of these films are primarily about white, straight, cis, aloe, middle to upper class Americans or Europeans. There are characters who don't fit all of those, but most of them play relatively minor supporting roles in the main stories. I'm pretty sure that all of the directors on this list are white, and all of the screenwriters are at least half white, but I don't know all of their backgrounds, so forgive me if I'm unintentionally erasing the identity of any of these filmmakers. Regardless, I definitely need to watch more movies made by people of color. As I addressed in previous episodes, only two of these movies were directed solely by a woman. One was co-directed by a man and a woman, and the other 37 were directed by men. So I also need to watch more female-directed films. The screenwriter gender breakdown is a little better, with 8 written solely by women, 8 written by a combination of men and women, and 24 written solely by men. I would personally love to see more movies written and directed by non-binary people, but mainstream society doesn't seem to want to give them much of a voice, so I think I'll have to look into more independent films to find that. The two newest movies on this list were independently produced with funds raised through Kickstarter, so I do seem to be moving in that direction, even though the vast majority of my top films were made by major Hollywood studios. I wasn't surprised that Disney was the studio with the most films on this list, with nine. What can I say? I grew up during the Disney Renaissance. I was indoctrinated. But I wasn't necessarily expecting RKO to have the second most, with seven, considering that studio hasn't been around since the 1950s. MGM is in third place with six, but I would have expected that to have more than RKO, considering it made a lot of classic Golden Age gems and still technically exists today, even though it's now owned by Amazon. Over half of the movies on this list were made by one of those three studios. Again, an embarrassing lack of diversity. 
I'm not sure how many LGBTQIA filmmakers were involved with the films on this list, since even now people don't always feel safe or comfortable coming out publicly, and in the past it was even more dangerous to do so. However, the director with the most films on this list, George Cukor with four, was openly gay, and as I mentioned in several episodes, sometimes movies with supposedly straight characters give off queer vibes. No character in any movie on this list is openly aromantic or asexual, but I was still able to spend a lot of this podcast talking about the ways I related to these stories as an aeroace person. Since I've been so focused on how much I wish there was less romance and sex in movies, I thought it would be interesting to give each of my top 40 a score indicating how important romance and sex were to the story, on a scale of 0 to 3 for each, with 0 meaning there's essentially none and 3 meaning there's a lot. Now, I will point out that no movie on this list is rated higher than PG-13, so a 3 on the sexual content scale is still pretty mild. I also feel like reasonable people could disagree about how to rate some of these movies, so please indulge me as I go through each movie and state and briefly justify my scores. Mary Poppins gets a zero for both, even though there is a kiss between Mr. and Mrs. Banks, but they were already married at the beginning and their relationship is far from the main focus of the story, which goes out of its way to keep Mary and Bert's relationship platonic. Similarly, while Emperor's New Groove does show that Pacha and Chicha are in a loving married relationship, that's such a tiny portion of the film that I'm also giving this one a zero for both romance and sex. So we're off to a great start. Legally Blonde is a bit trickier because at the beginning Elle is extremely focused on romance, but she becomes less so as the story progresses, although other characters remain focused on romance throughout. Also, there are no sex scenes, but there are still some rather explicit sexual references, so I'm giving Legally Blonde a 2 for romance and a 2 for sex. The Princess Bride has a lot going on, but the romantic love between Wesley and Buttercup is consistently one of its main focuses, so I'm giving it a 2 for romance, but apart from some very slight innuendo, I don't remember any sexual content, so it gets a 0 for sex. Frozen is another kids movie, so another zero for sex, but the romance aspect is fascinating because it starts out tricking you into thinking it's going to be very romance focused, but ends up demonstrating that the initial romance was fake and other kinds of love are just as important, so I'm giving Frozen a 1 for romance. Chicago is probably the most sexually explicit movie on this list, so I have to give it a 3 for sexual content, but there's only a little bit of romance, so it gets a 1 for romantic content. The Sound of Music has quite a bit of non-romantic stuff going on, but the relationship between Maria and Georg and Maria's internal conflict between wanting to be a nun and wanting to be with him are important parts of the story, so I'm saying romance to sex one. Holiday is mostly about Johnny thinking he's in love with Julia and learning he's really in love with Linda. The social commentary keeps it from being a three on the romantic content scale in my opinion, but I can't give it lower than a two. I suppose sex is meant to be implied because they talk about marriage so much, but I don't recall any specific innuendo, so I'm giving it a zero for sexual content. Newsies is mostly about the strike, but there's still the Jack and Sarah romance stuck in there, and the lovey-dovey baby song is pretty suggestive, so I'm saying one for romance, one for sex. Stage Door is one of the few production code era movies that actually has more sexual content than romantic content. There's a lot more focus on potentially using sex to get ahead in show business than on romance, although there's still a bit of romance in there too, and the sex isn't super explicit, so I'm saying one for romance, two for sex. Monkey Business is mostly about the formula to make people young, but that seems to manifest itself by stirring up relationship drama. The sexual aspect is mostly innuendo, so I'm going with two for romance, one for sex. Father Goose starts out with no romance, but by the end becomes mostly focused on Walter and Catherine's relationship, and there are some mild sexual references, so I'm again going with two for romance, one for sex. 
Mr. Blanding's built his dream house is mostly about the house. There's some minor relationship drama, but even that is more about stress caused by the house situation than actual romance, so I would argue that it only deserves a one for romance. I'm tempted to give it a zero for sex, but there's enough innuendo when Bill spends the night alone with Muriel that I think I have to give it a one. Adam's Rib is another tricky one because it's about a trial that impacts romantic relationships, but the focus is rarely on the romantic aspect of those relationships. And by today's standards, there really isn't that much sexual content either, although for its time it feels pretty explicit. So I'm saying one for romance and two for sex. Mama Mia has enough focus on non-romantic relationships that I'm only giving it a two for romance, but even though there aren't any explicit sex scenes, there's enough talk about it and enough suggestive dancing that I think it deserves a three for sexual content, at least on my scale. I know that The Lion King features one of the most romantic Disney songs of all time, but I would argue that a relatively minuscule amount of the plot is actually dedicated to the romance between Simba and Nala, so I'm giving it a one for romance. And despite the misinterpretation of the leaves spelling SFX as the word sex and the rather suggestive look that Nala gives Simba in the middle of their love song, overall, I don't think it has enough sexual content to justify a rating above zero. Freaky Friday appears at first glance to be heavily focused on romance, since Tess is about to get married and Anna wants to pursue a romantic relationship. But it's way more about the mother-daughter relationship, so I'm giving it a one for romance and also a one for sex because there's a bit of innuendo. The romantic aspect of the major and the minor is weird and kind of toxic, but it's still there and it's pretty important, so I'm giving it a two for romance. Then there's the whole Pamela assuming Philip slept with Susan part and some sexual harassment before it was called that. It's not super explicit, but I'm still saying that's a two for sexual content, at least for its time. I argued in the Bringing Up Baby episode that I don't really believe that the main romantic storyline is actually romantic, but the characters seem to think it is, and Susan at least is pretty focused on that, so I'm saying two for romantic content, and once again there's a bit of innuendo, so one for sexual content. Enchanted is very much a romantic story, so I have to give it a romantic rating of three. And while I'd like to give all kids' movies a sexual content rating of zero, I'm sorry, that shower part boosted up to a one. Kids might not know they're talking about sex, but there's really no other way to interpret that. Ella Enchanted has quite a bit of romance, but the main storyline is Ella trying to get rid of her curse, so I think that keeps the romantic content rating at a two. And again, I want to say zero is sexual content because it's a kid's movie, but then I remembered some of the things Char's fangirls say, and yeah, I have to give it a one. Notorious is ultimately a spy movie, but the spying is accomplished by Alicia seducing and pretending to fall in love with Alex and actually falling in love with Devlin, so that sounds like a two for both. It's a Wonderful Life is about a lot of other things, but a good chunk of it is devoted to George and Mary's relationship, and there's enough innuendo that I'm going with two for romance, one for sex. Again, I argued in the Beauty and the Beast episode that I've never seen Belle and the Beast's relationship as a typical romance, but most characters and audience members seem to. I still maintain that there's enough other stuff going on to keep it from being a 3, but I don't think I'd be justified in giving it a romance score below a 2. But I'm not giving it a sexual content rating above a 0, despite what the childhood ruiners say. A Mighty Win is mostly about a concert, but it gets a bit into Mitch and Mickey's romance, and there are a few sex jokes, so I'm saying one for both. His Girl Friday is pretty focused on Hildy wanting to marry Bruce but still being in love with Walter, but that's not the only thing it's about, so I'm giving it a 2 for romantic content. If you read between the lines and interpret Molly as a prostitute, I guess an argument could be made to give it a higher sexual content rating, especially because there are a few other veiled sexual references as well, but I'm sticking with one because it's all innuendo. 
Gaslight is an interesting one because it's very focused on the relationship between Gregory and Paula, but it's more about the abuse than the romance, and nobody should think of this as a romantic movie, so I'm saying one for romantic content and one for sexual content because while there's nothing explicit, it is very heavily implied that Nancy is sleeping with Constable Williams. Edgar Allan Poe's murder mystery dinner party is quite focused on friendship, but the party wouldn't be happening in the first place if Edgar wasn't trying to woo Annabelle, and there's also the whole Lenore H.G. Wells thing, so I'm saying two for romantic content. And while it's not at all explicit for the 2010s, there are definitely some sexual references, so that's a one. The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer is almost entirely about romance, so I can't give it below a three for romantic content. And while the movie does make it very clear that The Bachelor does not sleep with the Bobby Soxer, again, there's enough innuendo that I have to give it a 1 for sexual content. North by Northwest is mostly about Roger trying to figure out what's going on. While he does fall in love with Eve, for a good chunk of the movie we think she's trying to kill him, so I don't think it deserves higher than a 1 for romantic content. But it was fairly sexually explicit for its time, so I'm giving it a 2 for sexual content. The Sure Thing is very focused on both sex and romance, so that one gets a three for both. Ishtar has a little bit of romantic content, but it's mostly about the incompetence of the bumbling songwriter, so I'm giving it a one for romantic content. But there is some nudity and rather frank conversations about sex, so I feel like I have to give it a three for sexual content. I actually thought Ishtar was rated R until I double-checked before making that episode. It's PG-13, but just barely. My Man Godfrey is about a lot of things, but although Godfrey the character would prefer to keep romance out of it, Irene keeps forcing it into the story, so it gets a 2 for romantic content. And like most movies of its era, there's no explicit sexual content, but there's enough innuendo to earn it a 1. The Princess Diaries is mostly about Mia learning she's a princess, but enough of it is about her relationship with Michael and her crush on Josh that I have to give it a 2 for romantic content. But, as my sister Rosemary pointed out in that episode, the romance is very innocent and I don't recall even enough innuendo to bring the sexual content rating above a zero. The Case of the Gilded Lily mirrors the innuendo but no real sexual content of Production Code era films, but with significantly less romance than most of them, so I'm giving it a one for both. Top Hat is extremely focused on the confusing romance between Jerry and Dale, so that's a three for romantic content, but despite the fact that their dancing has been compared to making love, I'd argue that as far as sexual content, there's barely enough innuendo to earn it a one, let alone anything higher than that. Singing in the Rain is mostly about the change in the motion picture industry from silence to talkies, but Dawn's love life pulls enough of the focus that it gets a two for romantic content. And while there's barely any sexual content, Sid Charisse's dancing is suggestive enough to earn it a 1. I'm going to be bold and say that Clue has zero romance, because even though there is some kissing, none of it is really romantic. But most of the suspects are being blackmailed for sexual reasons, so it gets a 2 for sexual content. While I don't watch Pride and Prejudice specifically for the romance, I can't deny that that's what most of the story is about, so I have to give it a 3 for romantic content. And the whole Lydia Wickham thing brings the sexual content score up to two. One could even make an argument for three since we do briefly see them in bed together, but I think it's a small enough proportion of the miniseries to keep it at a two. Similarly, the Philadelphia story has lots going on, but it is all about Tracy's wedding and which of the three possible grooms she's most in love with, so I have to give it a three for romance. And even though she doesn't actually sleep with Mike, there's enough talk about it that I'm giving it a sexual content score of two. To sum all that up, as far as romantic content goes, three of these movies got a score of zero, 13 got a score of one, 18 got a score of two, and six got a score of three. For sexual content, eight got a score of zero, 19 got a score of one, nine got a score of two, 
and 4 got a score of 3. And if we add the romantic and sexual ratings together, only 2 movies got a score of 0, 2 got a score of 1, 11 got a score of 2, 13 got a score of 3, 8 got a score of 4, 3 got a score of 5, and 1 got the maximum score of 6. So why did I go through all of that? Well, aside from wanting an excuse to go back through all 40 movies again, I also wanted to emphasize that even when you're not interested in sexual or romantic content, it's extremely difficult to avoid. Allonormativity and amatonormativity are everywhere. I was able to find ways to relate to these movies from an airways perspective, but every single one ultimately leans, at least to some extent, into the pervading societal assumption that every normal human fundamentally desires a long-term monogamous romantic and sexual partner of the opposite sex. This is so normalized that two movies that earned a zero for both romantic and sexual content still include romantic kissing. And while I stand by my assertion that those movies don't have enough romantic content to justify a higher rating, I also know that if those throwaway background romantic moments had been between two characters of the same sex, a bunch of people would have made a huge deal about how the LGBT plus agenda was being shoved down their throats and forced on their children. You know who really shoves their lifestyle down people's throats and forces them on children? Straight cis aloes. If children's sexual and romantic orientations could be changed just by seeing them in movies, I would be incredibly straight and aloe by now. But even spending all those years bombarded with the message that normal people were like that, it didn't make me feel attraction that my brain wasn't wired to feel, it just made me confused. What I would love to see in my next 20 years of movie watching is more normalization of other ways of being outside of amatonormativity. Right now, that's feeling very unlikely, given the enormous backlash against LGBTQIA rights that is currently escalating throughout much of this country. More awareness of aspec identities has led to more explicit aphobia, but it has also led more people like me to understand ourselves better, and I would love to see that continue until acceptance overwhelms the bigotry. And that could be greatly helped by more aspec artists getting to tell their stories. I know of some good A-spec representation in books and TV shows, but I really haven't heard about much in feature films, apart from the sort of vague ace coding I've discussed throughout this podcast. But I would love to hear recommendations if any listeners out there know of any openly asexual and or aromantic movie characters. Many of the movies on this list are silly comedies, which don't tend to be recognized by the Academy Awards, but I thought it would be fun to look into the Oscar stats a bit anyway. Of these 40 movies, 23 were nominated for at least one Oscar, and 10 had at least one win. Among those, there were a total of 98 nominations and 28 wins. The most nominations for a single film was 13, achieved by both Mary Poppins and Chicago, and the most wins was 6, again, by Chicago. Two movies that were nominated won 100% of the Oscars they were nominated for, Frozen with two and The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer with one. I did go through and watch all the Best Picture, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar winners, at least up to a certain year, and those projects added to the view counts of five of the movies that made it into my top 40. Mary Poppins, Chicago, The Sound of Music, Gaslight, and The Philadelphia Story. I have considered tackling other Oscar categories, and I'll probably make a podcast about it if I do, so that could potentially be on the horizon, we'll see. Another movie podcast idea I have is to pick either an actor or director and go through their entire filmography chronologically and talk about that. I'm not sure if or when any of these ideas will come to fruition, but I have greatly enjoyed talking about movies on this podcast and would love to continue in a similar vein. 
As for the rewatch rewind, I like to think that for now it will just be on a rather long hiatus rather than being completely finished. I have continued to track the movies I watch, and my top 40 has already changed in the last year, so it will be interesting to see how my movie watching continues to change in the years ahead. After I'd been keeping track for 10 years, I blogged about the 35 movies I'd seen at least 10 times, and 30 of those movies were still in my top 40 after 20 years of keeping track. The 10 new movies that were added for this list obviously include the three movies that hadn't come out yet 10 years earlier, Frozen, Edgar Allan Poe's Murder Mystery Dinner Party in the case of The Gilded Lily, in addition to Notorious, Adam's Rib, Mr. Blanding's Built His Dream House, Father Goose, Holiday, The Emperor's New Groove, and Mary Poppins. The five movies that were in my top 35 after 10 years but were not in my top 40 after 20 were Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Neptune's Daughter, Duck Soup, and The Phantom of the Opera. For the 30 movies that were on both lists, I still had a lot of new things to say about them 10 years later. I'm not sure if I'll wait until I've been keeping track for 30 years to return to this podcast or if I'll also do something for 25 years, but I do have every intention of returning for another season of something similar eventually. I probably won't do the exact same thing, maybe I'll do a top 100 or I'll talk about my top movies from each decade or year, either of keeping track or when they came out, I haven't decided yet. So stay subscribed or following to hear more from me in a few years, assuming these podcast platforms are still around in a few years. Regardless of what the future has in store, thank you so much for listening to my analysis of the 40 movies I rewatched the most in my first 20 years of keeping track. Since I don't know what movie I'll be talking about next, in honor of his 120th birthday, I'll wrap this up with a quote that has at least been attributed to Cary Grant, although I couldn't find where or when he said it, so maybe he didn't, but it's a good quote anyway. My formula for living is quite simple. I get up in the morning and I go to bed at night. In between, I occupy myself as best I can.